Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with Richard Carlton, CEO of the Canadian Securities Exchange. The CSE plays a material role in our economy and in supporting early stage companies in obtaining growth capital that they need to execute their business plans. From what I can hear, Richard and the CSE are making the point of actually living up to their slogan of being the exchange for entrepreneurs. It's interesting to note that the CSE as a business and a marketplace was effectively a startup that went through the same struggles any business would, even requiring capital raising from friends and family and high net worth individuals and so on. When thinking about public markets, Richard tells us that one of their goals is to lower the cost of capital for companies when compared against other capital sources like private equity or venture capital. Now you may think that this is theoretical, but it's a real consideration that CEOs and CFOs need to keep in mind when planning for and raising new capital. Richard also strongly believes that the market is the right place to price risk. In other words, it's the collective buying and selling of market participants that will determine your share price against their perceived risk. This brings me to another point Richard makes about public companies and their investor relations programs. To his advice, there are three rules. Communicate, communicate, and communicate. These rules actually reminded me of a previous episode I did with a former Goldman Sachs banker. In her words, the best of the best companies over-communicate. So the larger lesson here is how investor communication impacts how the market prices you. Let's take an example. When you have two public companies, all things being equal except for their market communications programs, would they both be priced the same? Assuming one company over-communicates to the market through various media channels, and the other company doesn't do much more than their required press releases, who would be more visible? Who would build greater investor confidence and who would be rewarded with a greater share price? The point is that a public company engaging their shareholder base and working to be top of mind with their potential investors will ultimately win out. It needs to be a priority to tell a compelling, digestible story which will build liquidity and ultimately reduce the cost of capital for that company. Now, Richard makes the point that the traditional investment research and broker-dealer model has changed. Today, there are many more media channels to distinguish yourself and to stand out from those competing for the same capital. So needless to say, there's a lot of valuable information in this episode for companies going public or for those who already are. Enjoy the show. On the line, I have Richard Carlton, who is the CEO of the Canadian Securities Exchange. Richard, thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Corey. Thank you for making the time. I think this is very interesting. The Canadian Securities Exchange is a big part of our capital markets in Canada, and it's also 
increasingly getting international exposure. And, you know, there's so many aspects of our economy that revolve around our markets. And I'm looking forward to our discussion. Me too, Corey. Pleasure to be here. What I'd like to do, Richard, is could you start off with an introduction about yourself and we can build from there? Certainly. Well, I guess my main confession is that I'm a recovering lawyer. I began my career in litigation practice in downtown Toronto way back in the 1980s. I went in-house with the Toronto Stock Exchange in late 1988 and learned the cash equities business uh, from the inside of the Toronto Stock Exchange for about 12 years or so and became very passionate about the equities markets and the role that equities markets perform in providing capital to growing businesses as well as investment opportunities for individuals and obviously uh, institutional investors as well. I left the exchange early in this century. I worked in New York and Toronto doing a variety of different projects for various clients, including a stint with uh, Standard & Poor's in New York and Toronto, building index products and working with ETF providers and had an interesting insight into the creation of sector indices and related ETF products, bond market products, and really was a part of the crew who designed what we would think of as the modern ETF industry, uh, which was a, a great learning experience. Eventually, I did some work with the Canadian, what was uh, the predecessor organization to the Canadian Securities Exchange as they were getting launched in 2003 and 2004. I joined the organization on a full-time basis in late 2005 to help build the facility that traded TSX and venture exchange stocks that was principally tailored to high-frequency trading firms uh, projecting liquidity into the Canadian marketplace. And I've been CEO of the organization since July 2011 and was I guess with uh, the team that we have put together, I was very glad to hear you say that we're now a meaningful material part, especially of the early stage capital markets in Canada. We've obviously been very pleased to work with many, many entrepreneurs over the last 10, 12 years as we've helped them obtain the growth capital required to uh, fulfill their business ambitions. Richard, I'm I'm interested. You know, we've got a series of questions here that we'll use for our discussion, but what you said there is you know, a passion and an interest for the capital markets. And it's something that I'm learning that you and I both share in that sense. I think that we've got a very interesting market environment in Canada. I think it's almost outstanding globally. But where does your passion come from? And what really ignites you about the capital markets and, and what you're building there with the CSE? Obviously, I started my career in the large cap world. I was involved in the development of the 60 index and the current version of the S&P TSX composite and so on. That's a pretty rarefied atmosphere. It was a real pleasure to join the Canadian Securities Exchange because we really had a couple things going on. One, we're a startup ourselves. And so we had to raise the money from a variety of sources, whether it was uh, venture capital, private equity, high net worth individuals, friends and family, you name it, we've done it. And to go through that experience ourselves and then to provide a market which we've specifically tailored to early stage companies, in effect, almost like ourselves, what we bring to the table is an understanding, a real insight into what these folks are going through because we literally have walked a mile in their shoes. So we know how hard it is. We know what a difficult process it is even to get a company to the level where you're looking to take it public. And so for us, it's tremendously satisfying to look back and say, okay, we have been successful. We've made it through the very difficult days. 
early on, raise sufficient capital. We're now generating significant free cash flow, which is, of course, the object of every entrepreneur as an organization ourselves. And as I say, if we can provide that uh, proverbial helping hand to other entrepreneurs, as I say, it's tremendously satisfying for us. Interesting. And I guess that really feeds into the slogan of the CSE, which is the exchange for entrepreneurs. Can we unpack that? Because I think for any management team or CEO who's looking to go public, there's probably misconceptions. You know, how does that differentiate and what does that mean to be the exchange for entrepreneurs? Well, obviously, I'm not going to talk about the other folks or other opportunities in the public markets because we really want to focus on our message, which is, again, there's no reason for us to exist unless we can lower the cost of capital for businesses compared to alternatives, whether it's in the public markets or whether it's from private sources of capital. And so our model was specifically designed to focus on disclosure as opposed to having the exchange review or second guess or substitute their opinion for various transactions, then having, in effect, the company itself make its decisions, inform its shareholders, inform the market, and let the market price risk not exchange staff. And so, again, we believe passionately that the right place to price risk is in the markets. That's what they exist for. So it's not that our rules are more lax. I mean, the Securities Acts and the company legislation in in every province in Canada is very strict in terms of what disclosure is required from these companies. And our role, we believe, is to ensure that the issuers provide as much information to the marketplace as possible so that risk can be properly priced in the market. And as I say, we believe passionately that that is the right way to approach junior capital finance as opposed to perhaps a more paternalistic approach, one that companies sometimes find very difficult to work with. Interesting. I do want to step back and say congratulations on reaching some of these milestones and finding the success you're finding, especially being, you think about my background being in finance and technology, the endeavor to create an online marketplace for something as simple as bringing a couple of users or a number of users together to exchange in a two-sided marketplace is incredibly hard. But you've done this with a number of companies and now built up a vibrant exchange. So I think I just want to go back and say congratulations to that. That's a hell of an undertaking. Well, Corey, it probably falls into the category of, uh, you know, if we knew then what we know now. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Well, I I guess uh, that's how all great things start. I think you're right. One thing that comes from that is you've built what seems to be an entrepreneurial organization, something that aims to be aligned with your issuers. And we did touch on this in in our pre-interview call there was, how have you found COVID pandemic and and the issues we're all facing and the, the remote work and everything that's happening now? How is that impacting both the CSE and then your issuers? So I guess there are a number of takeaways. The first ones were in late February and early March, as we began to see significant uptick in uh, volatility in the markets. I believe we had four market-wide circuit breakers that were implemented during the first couple of weeks of March. Our team is largely intact from the global financial crisis in uh, 07 and 08 from a technical operations standpoint. And so We're well trained, I guess, under those circumstances in terms of what to look for, the notices that needed to be put out. So again, I mean, obviously in a time of tremendous market stress, those processes work pretty darn well. 
And it wasn't just from us. Frankly, all of the markets in Canada, I think, handled the increase in message traffic and trading with a minimum of disruption. And I think Canadians generally can take some pride in the operational excellence, and I'm knocking on wood, of course, <laughs> that the equity markets demonstrated during that time of peak stress. So as I say, I think that was something that was really a positive takeaway. We also, from time to time over the years, have practiced the distributed market operations and technology model against, I don't know, a fire in our building in Toronto or some other kind of uh, operational disturbance. But I'd be lying if I said that we had anticipated you know, weeks and weeks of working from home for the vast mm -hmm. majority of the team. But we have found it's worked well. We were a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of going into isolation and social distancing. Obviously, many of us had been at PDEC, and we had a booth there, and we sponsored a couple of events that were extremely popular. And I'm sure you know, lots and lots of after hours getting together and networking and uh, so on at uh, PDAC. <laughs> we determined, though, that with the news that there were folks who had contracted uh, COVID from the show that we would put everybody, including myself, into isolation almost immediately. So we were a little bit ahead of, uh, as I say, the curve because of the number of us who had been at PDEC. We were already there, basically, as some of the other markets began to go into full social isolation. At our present state, we have nobody in the Vancouver office. They're all working remotely, including our market operations folks there. And we have a small skeleton team at First Canadian Place in Toronto. They are all within walking distance of the building. And we've got, I think, three or four on site on a daily basis. And then the remainder of the operations team is working from home. Again, it's been wonderful to see how people have collaborated with the conference bridge open and being able to share information through video calls and, of course, the operations uh, workstations. I guess one of my big concerns was the operations workstations is a big, heavy piece of hardware that takes a gigantic amount of message traffic at uh, you know, periods of the day. People's network connections and so on were up to the task. So we've been very pleased with mm. how the technology has worked. Now, Obviously, the shout out here is not just to our information technology and operations folks, because we've also been extremely active. And this is one of the other things that we have noticed at the resilience of the Canadian corporate finance community. We've had a higher than average number of applications to list on the exchange in the month of April. May is also going quite well to date. Financings have continued to close. We've listed a number of companies on the exchange uh, since we've been working from home. Our team, the listings uh, regulation folks, have been extremely busy in both processing existing applications and speaking with the potential issuers. Our business development team has been using social media, various platforms from Instagram, Instagram Live, podcasts, and other means of working with our issuers and thought leaders from the corporate finance space, especially with a junior capital orientation, to basically make sure that we're continuing to maintain and build those relationships through the pandemic. Really interesting to hear that that just as if nothing's happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't go quite that far. But as I say, I'm very pleased with how our team has pulled together and responded to the challenges of working from a distance. And as I say, it's been tremendously satisfying as the leader of that group to see what we've been able to achieve. Can we switch gears? I'm curious to ask you questions about how your issuers can perhaps perform better in the markets. Could we start with some misunderstandings? 
when a management team takes their company public, where do you find that there's the most misunderstandings about what it means to be public? This is a great area of inquiry. So I guess there's a variety of ways of looking at it. As I tell people on that great day when they come in and ring the bell and the stock symbol goes across the tape and there's trades and activity and so on, that's not the finish line. Mm. That's in fact, you've just got to the starting line. You're absolutely right. In North America, there are thousands upon thousands of companies which are either listed on a public market or traded over the counter in the United States. It almost doesn't matter what you do, what area of undertaking or what your business looks like. There's a lot of other people that are trying to pursue the same angle in all likelihood. And so it's a real competition for that management team to tell a compelling story to an investor base who will buy and sell their stocks in the secondary market. And of course, the more they build that liquidity, the cheaper their cost of capital is going to be because as they come back to the public markets for money, which almost inevitably every small company has to, the companies that have demonstrated track record of having built a liquid secondary market for their stocks, their cost of capital will be lower. So we talked to them about, and in fact, we're in the process of formalizing a program that we're calling the liquidity boot camp for company management to understand what are the techniques that work. And that's one of the real challenges is the traditional models of investment research done by full service brokerage firms who then put clients into individual stories. That broke down a generation ago, especially mm -hmm. in the small cap space. But now, of course, as a management team, you have an opportunity to take advantage of all of these different media channels to attract a shareholder base, to communicate your message, to distinguish yourself from your competitors. Those are some of the techniques that we're going to talk to them about. There's also the question of market making. Does it make sense to pay a market maker to ensure that there's always a decent sized bid and offer at a reasonable spread? Does it make sense to list on an exchange that has an existing market making program like the Canadian Securities Exchange does? So we have firms that will competitively bid for all of the names that are listed on the exchange from time to time where they assume responsibility for maintaining that bid offer spread as well as be at the bid and the offer, as well as providing automated execution of odd lot uh, orders. These are the sorts of things that uh, companies need to think about and understand as they try to build that liquidity profile. Can you just expand on the market making and what that would mean if a CEO looks at that and they've got to hire one or they've got to, or they want to participate or how should they be framing that up? How should they look at this? Well, I think we need to look at comparables. You need to understand what do the turnover numbers look like on different exchanges or different venues versus uh, others. Again, one of the other things that we talk to our issuers about are the advantages of actually being on one of the regulated boards operated by the OTC Markets Group in the United States. We think that there are a lot of benefits for many companies who are looking to potentially build a U.S. shareholder base as well as raise uh, private placement capital in the United States, which Canadian reporting issuers can do without a prospectus, which is a very, very handy tool for a lot of companies. But we also see that with a decent turnover in the United States on the OTC side, there's a lot of cross-border arbitrage that goes on. And the U.S. market makers are actually present in our book as well to lay off net long or net short positions, as well as to layer the book. So they have orders on both sides of the book as a kind of a speed bump so that if the market is running away from them and they get caught, they basically can take the position off by virtue of these orders that have been already put in place on our side of the market. 
So there's a lot of things that companies can do that actually may not cost them a lot of money. It'll take some time and some discipline, but the companies that have built a significant following, there are a certain number of practices that we've talked about that I think are common to them all. Now, when you say not a lot of money, how does that apply? Because I think it's difficult for CEOs to make a buying decision when it comes to what they should be investing in for supporting their investor marketing and supporting their IR programs. How could you provide some rules of thumb or frame that up for them? I'm not sure that I've got at my fingertips what a percentage of your spend or what a number on a monthly basis looks like. As I say, what we're looking to do is bring together some folks that have got demonstrated success using certain techniques and talk about the pros and cons of taking on some of the things that do cost you money, like, I don't know, paid research, for example, or paid market making, or, you know, some of the other perhaps less savory techniques that happen from time to time where folks will do mass campaigns that perhaps are, in the words of the regulators, uh, somewhat overly promotional. As I say, we'll be talking to our companies about the pros and cons of all of these different approaches. The other piece that I think is interesting for companies who are looking to list, you know, to get to the starting line, RTO is one of the main tools that we see companies do reverse takeover and list into a shell. Is that the same for the CSE and what are the best practices that you see in listing? Well, certainly the uh, RTO is the most common means of listing on the Canadian Securities Exchange. We have a vast number of potential shells in Canada not on the Canadian Securities Exchange because we delist companies that are inactive, although we do have a certain amount of forbearance with companies that are looking for an opportunity to do a fundamental business change, potentially with a third-party private company. The pros and cons, I think, are reasonably well understood. If you talk to most corporate finance professionals, the view is that regardless of what exchange you're going on to, the RTO will probably be faster. The exchanges tend to be somewhat more responsive than the securities commissions do when reviewing a prospectus. I'm not 100% sure that that's the case, but uh, certainly not in all cases. But again, that's the prevailing view in the corporate finance community. And then the commissions, of course, that the company is paying on the private placement, which almost inevitably goes along with the reverse takeover, are considerably lower obviously, than the prospectus uh, capital, because you're not requiring the broker or the broker who's doing a non-brokered financing or the exempt market dealer to basically sign a due diligence opinion as you would in the case of a prospectus. So the headline numbers on the RTO certainly look considerably lower than they would for a prospectus offering. That said, we've seen an increase in the number of companies coming public by way of prospectus again. And I think people are beginning to appreciate, I think, one important positive uh, benefit of the benefit of the prospectus approach. And that is that companies are basically recruiting their own shareholder base. And so this is particularly true when, say, you've got a mining company shell that's turning into a cannabis company. So the mining shell shareholders, they bought a mining story. They're mining investors. They're not necessarily interested in the cannabis space. So what tends to happen post-listing is that it's like a built-in overhang of sellers who will jump off the stock at the first opportunity of any buying interest in the name. So it takes a little while for, I think, the valuation of the company to come through once that buying pressure or selling pressure rather has kind of worked its way through the system. 
Whereas if you've done a prospectus, you've got shareholders who are committed to the story. They bought the story. It also, of course, tends to have a significantly higher number of shareholders, which results in a better liquidity profile following the company going public because you just have broader distribution of the stock. I think that's a really good point that people should be keeping in mind or uh, management teams looking to go public. That overhang can be costly. And how do you balance out that potential issue? So Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's right. And again, these are companies that are looking to raise additional capital. The company with the better liquidity profile is going to have a significantly lower cost of capital moving forward. I think the main reason that we have seen more companies opting for the prospectus approach than the RTO approach recently. Excellent. Okay. Uh, something that comes to mind here is with your issuers or potential issuers, in, or what can potential issuers learn from some of your best performers who have leveraged the exchange? the CSE. Can you point out maybe some of the things that they've been able to do to engage the market and really build sustainable value? It varies, of course, with the level of maturity of the company. Because, you know, let's be honest, many of the companies coming to market are pre-revenue, meaning that you're selling hope and dreams. <laughs> so <laughs> It's public venture capital. It's public venture capital. Absolutely right, which is okay. So those companies that tend to stand out, they follow the three rules, you know, communicate, communicate, communicate. And what you should be communicating, of course, is that you have a plan and that you are executing against that plan and that there have been no unhappier uh, surprises in the course of achieving that plan. Later, when you get companies that are in revenue, again, you have corporate milestones, you have forecasts, you have a program that you're looking to execute. And you need to be communicating with the marketplace that you are hitting those milestones, that you are containing your costs, that you are opening the stores, that your sales trajectory is better than you expected. All of the things that show that the management team is executing against the plan. And again, it's a communications exercise. It's just a question of you move from communicating your hope and your dreams to actual tangible positive results. When it comes to your issuers, and I guess, you know, even with the current events, there's no new normal. You know, there's a saying for investors sell in May and go away. And then there's now the saying like that rule does not apply. Like everything has changed. From your experience and from your position, what advice do you have for the CEOs and the management teams out there who are looking to manage through this and to build their companies? Are there any insights that you could share that are beneficial to them? It is interesting because the normal view of the world is that when the broad market or the senior market catches cold, and sorry for using the disease analogy. Interesting analogy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe I, I should come up with another one on the fly, but the junior markets really, really suffer under those circumstances. And we've actually seen anything but, and there are some obviously very cogent reasons for that. We were in a trend already where the price of gold had risen in the late part of last year and into the early part of this year, which caused a significant upswing in junior mining finance, both existing issuers uh, successfully raising capital and new companies being formed to advance uh, particular projects that uh, may not have been able to attract capital two, three, or five years ago. And that trend has continued about half of the companies that we have listed and the applications that we have received since the middle of February or thereabouts have been mining companies. 
those companies, as I say, have raised uh, quite a significant amount of money. We're also in a situation where, and I'm pleased that I'm now many minutes into an interview and, and I'm about to say cannabis for the first time. <laughs> I was no, like, normally... should I bring that up or no? <laughs> well, you know, I'm way past the point of saying cannabis and then giggling afterwards, but although I will confess it took a little while. But we're in a situation where the cannabis industry in most states in the United States and most provinces in Canada were determined to be essential businesses. And we saw consumers both stocking up and continuing to patronize the retail cannabis business in North America over the last several weeks. So the results that uh, a number of these companies have been posting are very positive, especially the U.S. issuers have done very, very well over the last several weeks. Now, that industry is in a state where we've got companies that are significantly down from their 52-week highs, companies that are running out of capital. Their business plans were based on a belief that they would always be able to tap the public markets for reasonably priced money. That's changed. So there is a move afoot for companies to raise additional capital to increase the amount of dry powder they have. Those are the, the ones that are able to. And we also have companies that are looking to restructure their operations and are looking for strategic alternatives, whether it's selling certain assets or merging with uh, somebody that uh, has a complementary business program. That sector, of course, has been extremely active. The other place where, again, if you're looking at the breakdown of our listings is a significant sector for us is the technology space. And as you would expect, life sciences-based technology has been a significant source of new companies and finance over the last eight to 12 weeks. So as I say, unlike the normal circumstance, like the global financial crisis or other downturns in the senior market, we're actually seeing a situation where the junior market is in fact performing quite nicely as an entire group through the pandemic so far. Well, that's very positive here. Something that I'm curious about, arguably the growth of the cannabis industry was a huge catalyst for the CSE. The question I have is, what was the discussions like with your management team and your board to move into that sector when it started coming? Because it didn't come out without risk. There were really two phases. The first one was easy. And that was, I think, around January, February of 2014, when we were faced with applications from a couple of issuers that were looking to raise capital to fund the application process to become a licensed producer under the Canadian MMPR legislation. And those two issuers turned into uh, Supreme Pharmaceuticals and Aurora Cannabis. From our perspective, there really were no issues. These were companies operating fully within the Canadian regulations. There were likely some specific disclosure issues that they would have to deal with. But again, nothing that couldn't be addressed through some work with the company and their advisors. So we didn't have any issues at all with the Canadian companies that approached us to list as they were applying to become licensed cultivators or ultimately retailers of cannabis. Fully legal operation operating within the bounds of provincial and federal regulations in Canada. The more difficult conversation was obviously with the companies coming to us from the United States. They were operating within the boundaries of a very, very, in most places, strict 
and comprehensive set of regulations in the particular jurisdiction or jurisdictions in which they were operating. But obviously, at a federal level, cannabis is a controlled substance under the Controlled Substances Act, Schedule 1, which puts it in there with heroin, LSD, and a variety of other things. Very comparable. <laughs> well, yes, there was, a, there was that. We were, I guess, in looking at the situation, we saw that the SEC had already approved a prospectus for a company that touched the plant in the United States. So they had gone through the disclosure required. They were operating within the framework of a particular state. The fact that it was illegal at the federal level did not prevent the SEC, a federally regulated agency, from approving the prospectus from that issuer. It did not prevent the Depository Trust Corporation, which is the clearing and settlement agency in the United States, from clearing trades that were taking place over the counter. So we saw that as pretty powerful support for the proposition that these companies were in fact appropriate for public listing. We also had Canadian securities regulators who had approved prospectuses for companies operating in the United States. With that, we viewed that maybe there was a risk, but it was very remote of any sort of issues with U.S. federal regulators. So with that, we began to offer listings and trading services to these companies. And obviously, through the fall of 2016 into 2017, we saw a number of very large and now successful companies join the exchange. It's obviously a significant part of our market capitalization given the fact that many of these companies have market caps of north of a billion dollars. <laughs> Part of me says, I'm sure your lawyer comrades made out very well going through all the potential issues that could have come upon you with the risk of that. Um, actually, like... I'll, I'll, I'll stop you there, Corey. They didn't. Well, remember, okay. I'm, a re I'm a recovering lawyer myself, right? Yeah. So... Okay. <laughs> well, I still look and I mean, cannabis even helped put Canada on the map as a jurisdiction to do business. So I thought that there'd be a lot more to it, but it sounds like it was pretty cut and dry with you. Yeah. Well, as I say, we did devote significant amount of thought yeah. from a management and board level. And that was a harder question. There's no doubt about it. It seemed reasonably straightforward uh, once uh, we did the analysis. And again, I mean, you're never going to get a lawyer to say that there's no risk. Mm. Of course, there's a risk. That's not the important question. The important question is, what's the likelihood of these risks uh, causing issues uh, for individuals employed by your company or the company itself? Given the headwinds we're all facing in the market, perhaps could you share some final thoughts or final advice for your issuers and potential issuers on what they should be perhaps not expecting, but preparing for? And, and you know, given that we're in some very uncharted territory with the markets now. Well, the first thing is uh, to not assume that everything has come to a dead stop. It hasn't. In fact, in many respects, we're in a great situation for companies that are looking to communicate with a potential retail shareholder base because they're at home. They're on their computer. Sure, they may be doing work, but they're also taking a moment or two to check the stock charts, the bulletin boards, the headline services, and everything else. So, and again, so people are closing deals, they're raising capital, they're going public on the exchanges. The, in effect, the wheels of commerce continue unabated at this point. And once they've completed that transaction, again, there's an extraordinary opportunity at this point to separate yourself from the competition by communicating at a higher level with compelling content to build that audience and that potential shareholder base. Well, Richard, thanks so much for taking the time to share some of these points. And I think we can wrap it up with that. Is there, aside from, well, actually, I want to ask you about how 
people can start to follow more of the work that you're doing with the CSE. And the reason why I say that is because you're certainly active with providing a lot of resources to issuers and potential issuers. How can people follow that work? You're right. We've been very, very active. I guess we've been taking our own medicine over the last few weeks on various social media channels. So we have a regular series of interviews with the issuers and thought leaders from the industry on Instagram Live. We have a series of hashtag finance podcasts, which we are posting to the various places that you pick up podcasts and so on. We have a YouTube channel, CSE TV, which people can subscribe to. We topped 500 subscribers the other day, which got my colleague James Black very excited. Congratulations. Uh, We're hoping for a thousand because apparently wonderful things happen to the search engine optimizers at that point. But uh, in any event, the best place to find the content and to schedule viewing opportunities is uh, through our website at thecse.com. So T-H-E-C-S-E.com. And we have daily updates in terms of what's going on via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Excellent. Well, Richard, thanks so much for making the time. My pleasure, Corey. Thank you very kindly. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.